Well, I bid you welcome in the Saviour's name to our adult Bible class this morning. For also those who are watching online, we trust the Lord will bless you as we gather around the Lord's Word. So let's turn to Leviticus 23, please, this morning. Leviticus 23, <coughs> and we'll read from verse 26. Leviticus 23, and from verse 26 through to verse 32. So let's hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no no work in in the same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul... It be that shall not be afflicted in that same day. He shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Ye shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest. And ye shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even, from even until even shall ye celebrate your Sabbath. Amen. And we'll end there at verse 32, and we'll look now to the Lord for his help and his blessing even upon his word. So let's unite together in prayer. Our gracious God and loving Father, once again we thank thee that we can approach thy throne of heavenly grace, and we come and we address thee as our Father. Rejoice, O God, in the reconciliation that Christ has made by his blood shedding. We thank thee for our advocate, the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Rejoice in him, Father. We thank thee that in him we find all perfection. We thank thee, Lord, that we find him as full of grace and truth. And Lord, we come to thee this day and we pray that, that Lord, by his blood, that thou would wash us afresh that thou would grant unto us the Spirit. Lord, give us help in this place. O God, we cry to thee. Remember our Sunday school and every teacher. We pray that they would know the infilling of the Spirit of the Lord and that signs would follow the preaching of thy word. O God, we pray that thou will give us a day. Shut in, O God. Think of the disciples shut in the upper room. And Christ came and stood in the midst. Then were the disciples glad for they had saw the Lord. And we pray, O God, that you'll edify us through your word. You'll strengthen us in our faith. We pray that you'll build us up, O God, not only in knowledge, O God, but we pray that there'll be a means by which we are strengthened by faith. And Lord, we pray that we would live lives of faith that are pleasing unto thee. So hear prayer and bring glory to thy Son. For this I ask in his precious and his worthy name. Amen. Now, we have been dealing with the seven feasts of the Lord as they're given to us here in Leviticus 23, and we have considered five already, the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, and the Feast of Weeks. And the last time we were looking at the first of the three autumnal feasts, the the, uh, Feast of Trumpets. And we thought as we looked at that about the when, the how, the why, and the what of that feast. But this morning we come to the sixth feast of the Lord that is mentioned here in this chapter. It is the Day of Atonement, and it is recorded here in verses 26 to 
32. Now we have a more fuller description of this feast in Leviticus chapter 16, but what I want to do this morning is instead of jumping straight into looking at this Day of Atonement and all the particulars and the procedures and the pictures of that day, is really to do a study on atonement itself. Now, we know that the most significant and important event in history was the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people know that He was crucified almost 2,000 years ago. And many people even have a vague idea regarding the meaning of Christ's death. They know that it's something to do with salvation. But when people are questioned regarding the biblical and the theological significance of His death, well, many to display ignorance of the fact that Christ came to make atonement for sin. And while in some respects atonement is simple, there is a profound depth and richness in that doctrine, and it does deserve a thorough study. And so we're going to begin to look at this subject of the atonement before we get into actually looking at the day of atonement under a number of headings this morning. And we're not going to finish uh, the study here as we begin the atonement. It's interesting, the Reverend Greer on Thursday evening as he's speaking to the men, he was mentioning just a little in a sermon about the atonement. He says, well, if you want to know anything about the atonement, uh, go and speak to Mr. Stewart. He learned about it all in college. And little did he know at that time that by the end of that day, I took Thursday to prepare this message on the atonement. Uh, and so, well, you're going to hear it from me. But I must say, I've, I've drawn in his notes from college and from other men as well. So firstly, a couple of headings this morning. The explanation of the atonement. There's no better place to go for a simplistic definition of the atonement than Alan Kern's Dictionary of Theological Terms. And he defines the atonement as the satisfaction of divine justice by the Lord Jesus Christ in His active and passive obedience, that is, His life and death, which procures for His people a perfect salvation. Now, of course, that's a very concise explanation of what atonement is, but we can expand on our understanding of what it is by looking at the various terms that are used in Scripture in connection with it. The Bible writers, of course, they employed various terms, a wide variety of words to bring out the meaning of the atonement. And quite often those terms well, were well known in the secular and the societal structure of that day, the cultural uh, climate in which they were set. But for us, we're not living in the same culture, we're not living in the same societal structure and all the rest of it. And so for many today, a lot of those words, well, we maybe are apt to miss the meaning of them. We impoverish our understanding of the atonement unless we understand what those words and those terms mean, those words and terms that were used. Now, the first really word, and the word from which we get the word atonement in the Old Testament is the word kafar. And that's translated to make atonement. It's a word that appears 102 times in the Bible. The first time that Hebrew word kafar is used well, you probably know the example I'm going to give you is Genesis chapter 6 and the verse 14, and it's translated there as pitch. And of course, that's in relation to Noah and the ark that he built, and he was told to pitch it within and without. And that's a very apt usage of the word there, because it literally means, as Hebrew word kafar, it means to cover over, 
so as not to be seen. Now, there's an associated Hebrew word in the Old Testament as well. It's the word that we have in our version as mercy seat. And a translation really of mercy seat, the literal translation is a place of covering. Now, we find another way in which this Hebrew word is translated, kafar, in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 20. So turn there, Genesis 32. We'll be going through the Bible today. Genesis 32 and verse 20. And there it's translated as a peace. And we have it as the count of Jacob, and he's going, or Israel, and he's going to meet Esau after many years. And in verse 30, or sorry, verse 20 of chapter 32, Genesis 32, we read, And say, Ye moreover, behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease, there's the word, appease him with the present that goeth before me. And afterward I will see his face, peradventure he will accept of me. And that verse is very helpful in the understanding of what atonement is and what atonement does. It's an offering by which an offended party's anger is turned away and the offender is accepted because Jacob goes on to say there that I will see his face. This present, this offering that's going before him, that will appease Esau in his wrath and then I'll see his face. I'll be accepted of him. And that's a wonderful illustration of what atonement is and what atonement does. Now, it's also translated another way. So, it's translated pitch, it's translated appease, it's translated to make atonement for, but it's also translated to forgive in Jeremiah chapter 18 and the verse 23. So, it's translated there as forgive, this Hebrew word. And this draws in other, other words in the Old Testament, words for forgiveness that are usually translated as pardon or pardoned or forgiving or forgiveness or forgiven. Now, there's two words in the Hebrew that are used, used for forgiveness. They're the words nasa and salah. So, Liverpool supporters might be able to remember the second one a little bit better. Nasa and Salah, and they have a very close connection to atonement and what atonement really produces. And they both really have the same meaning. Uh, it's a multifaceted meaning, these two words, but they both really mean the same thing, meaning to lift up and carry away, to be at rest, to be at peace, to be sent away, to let go, or to take away. Now, we have the first of those two words, Nasa, found in those wonderful words of Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? There's the first word, Nasa. And what is interesting concerning the second word, if I'm not mistaken in my study of it, is that word is used only and solely of God's offer of forgiveness to the sinner. Never does that second word in any of its form, to re refer to people forgiving one another. It is exclusively used of a divine action, and it always involves the removal of guilt by the associated sacrifice for sin. And that word, for example, is found in Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Command of the Lord, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for He will abundantly 
pardon. And so the connection between the atonement and forgiveness is that the suffering of the substitutionary sacrifice, it has the effect of covering over the guilt of sin, so as to make it invisible to the eyes of God. And with this covering, sin is forgiven. It is sent away. It is let go. It is not on a person's account anymore. And that's really what expiation is. And in that, the conscience of the transgressor is at rest. So you're bringing all these words together. Forgiveness means to let go, to lift up, to carry away. The second word for forgiveness, Salah, is only used exclusively in relation to God's forgiveness of sinners and always in connection with an associated sacrifice for sin. And so we see here that the atonement and the forgiveness are so intimately connected that the atonement provides a covering. It lifts up the guilt and sends it away from the sinner. And the sinner then is at peace with God. Their conscience is at rest. But more than that, as a result of the atonement, God Himself is at rest. His anger is pacified. It is His anger that's been turned away, and that is propitiation. So expiation is the lifting up and removal of our guilt. Propitiation is the appeasing, the turning away of God's wrath. And we thought about that in the Levitical offerings. And especially when we consider the expression, a sweet savor. Those sacrifices described there as a sweet savor unto the Lord. Reading first about that in Genesis chapter 8 and the verse 21. The Lord smelled a sweet savor or a savor of rest. The Lord was at rest. He was appeased. His anger was turned away. And of course, they all find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 and the verse 2. It tells us of Christ as the one who has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling savor. Now, when the Greeks, when they translated the Hebrew Bible, they used certain Greek words to translate the Hebrew words that were used in the Old Testament. And those words have their own particular shades of meaning. And again, them words they confirm, they help us to further understand the meaning of atonement. For example, the Hebrew word kafar, it's translated by the Greek word which means to appease or to propitiate. The Hebrew word salah for forgiveness, well, it's translated by a Greek word that has the idea of deliverance or release or to let go or liberty or freedom. And that Greek word, it's used twice by the Lord Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 when he's quoting from Isaiah's prophecy. It says there, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance, that's the word, to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Now through these words, the point is underscored, that as by the suffering of a substitute, divine wrath is appeased. And as a consequence, the punishment due to sin is not inflicted upon a transgressor. They're set at liberty. And that release, that non-infliction of penalty towards the guilty is essentially the forgiveness of sins. It is freedom, deliverance, 
and it's only found in the atonement. And that's clearly set before us in verses such as Hebrews 9, 22. Without shedding of blood is no remission. There's no release. There's no letting go. Now, I know that you are well-versed in these things here. But we shouldn't take it for granted. The lack of biblical teaching is astounding in our society today. I have conversations with those walking into school as I'm leaving Daniel down into school. And honestly, it would frighten you that some of the things that people who profess to be Christians are telling you what they believe not even in respect to the atonement, but things like prayer and healings and all the rest of it. It is mind-boggling. And we are so well-versed in the free church, I have to say we have great biblical teaching and exposition. But there's many who do not have this. And as such, not having knowledge, they are, as the Bible says, destroyed. You see, without biblical knowledge, people are shaken in their faith. They lack assurance. They become easy prey for the devil. And they're blown about with every wind and doctrine. And that's why it's good to be reminded of these things. You've heard them before in preaching and different things like that. You've heard different terms being brought in and different illustrations being used. Noah's Ark with pitch and all the rest of it. But it's good to be versed in these. It's good to be grounded in these things because this is where our assurance lies in the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has lifted up our guilt. And we'll see this when we come to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 in the scapegoat. He has taken our guilt. He has carried it away. And by His offering, He has appeased God. He has propitiated the wrath of God. And we have the non-infliction of penalty upon us. We have Forgiveness of sins. That's essentially what it is. Now, the actual word atonement, to continue on the explanation of it, these terms and these words, it only occurs once in the authorized version in the New Testament. And that verse is Romans chapter 5 and the verse 11. Romans 5 verse 11. That's the only use of the word, the noun, we have to say atonement in the New Testament tells us there, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. This is the only, as I said, place that the noun atonement is used in the New Testament, but its associated verb is used in ten other places. And the word, the verb, it means to exchange, to pay the difference. Primarily, that's what it means. And secondarily, it means to consolidate. And it's a word that was employed when two parties in a dispute were settling their difference. And they would resolve their difference by one paying the exchange or the balance to the other. And we noticed the illustration of that really in Genesis 32 when Jacob went to meet Esau. He, he sent the gift. He was trying to make up the balance, as it were. And the word, therefore, it, it signifies the verb for, uh, the associated verb for atonement that we find here in Romans chapter 5, verse 11. It signifies really 
reconciliation. And that's how it's used there in Romans chapter 5, verse 11. We could read it like that. By now we have received uh, the reconciliation. We have been reconciled unto God. These words, uh, some of them we have to say, they emphasize the effect that the blood, the blood sacrifice has on sin. It covers it over. And some of these words, they emphasize the effect that the blood sacrifice has on God. It appeases His holy wrath. And in pulling all those terms together, we get the understanding, we have an explanation of what the atonement is. It is the offering of the blood sacrifice to Christ, which don't forget is the culmination of His life of perfect obedience to God, by which God is satisfied. His anger is turned away, and our sin is covered over, so that you and I do not receive the punishment that is our due. So that's the explanation, really, of the atonement. But secondly, this morning, I want us to consider the essentiality of the atonement, or what we might say, the necessity of the atonement. I've used essentiality because really in the coming weeks that's for alliteration and, well, that'll help you maybe keep it in your mind. But what is meant when it's said that the atonement was essential or necessary? Well, the first thing to point out is a distinction that needs to be made with respect to necessity as it relates to God's motive or moving cause to save sinners, and a necessity as it relates to God's method or means of saving sinners. So there's two ways we can look at this. Necessity with respect to God's moving cause, or necessity with respect to the means of how we were saved. And these need to be treated differently because they're different questions and the Bible answers them in different ways. So the first question, did God, because of something within His own nature, or something intrinsic to man, have to save sinners? Was there something in Him or in us that made it necessary for the atonement to be made? Did God's attributes of love, mercy, and compassion force him to act? Could God have left the whole human race to perish in their sins if he so desired? That's the first with respect to the necessity of the atonement. And I have to say this truly blessed my soul. The biblical answer is that God's decree to save sinners was a free choice that was not determined by any internal or external necessity. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15 that God predestinated His elect to salvation in Christ and it was according to the good pleasure of His will. It's a wonderful thing. There was no internal or external cause 
that made it or uh, gave God the necessity or placed upon him the necessity, well, oh, I must, I must redeem a people. It was out of his free, sovereign choice. And you know, that is a most humbling thought. That's a most glorious thought. To the Galatians, the apostle Paul, he wrote the same thing. In chapter 1 and the verse 4, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Listen, according to the will. God the Father. Simply because God willed it. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, that's Christ, should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself by Him, that is Christ. And all these passages clearly indicate that God's decision to save sinners was a free, a sovereign choice. The Bible also repeatedly speaks of the free gift that's given by God. And this does not mean that the achieving of redemption was without a cost. Because Christians were purchased, we were bought with a great price. Christ has redeemed the church with His own precious blood. But the free gift passages, they refer to the fact that God bestows salvation upon the elect freely, voluntarily. God was not obligated to save any, to save anyone, but out of his own good pleasure he freely gave. Paul again, he says that believers are justified freely by his grace, that God will freely give us all things, that the Holy Spirit enables us to know the things that have been given freely to us by God. God's freeness in giving salvation to the elect, of course, it's intimately connected to His grace. The grace of God means that He's given His favor, He's bestowed His favor upon those who are deserving of wrath, those who hate God, those who are His enemies. Salvation is never presented in the Scriptures because of an internal or external necessity. And that is the way in which Paul exegetes it in Romans chapter 9. The words, verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy, on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he harden. Now although the Bible teaches that the moving cause of the atonement was God's good pleasure. It doesn't mean that that act wasn't written in God's nature. What I mean by that? Well, the, the Bible speaks of the atonement as really the provision of God's love. We have the great example, John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 1 John 4 verse 10 Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Christ's death as the, the ultimate demonstration of the love of God. Romans 5, verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Father didn't have to send the Son. The sin, Son didn't have to humble Himself and come. But out of love and mercy, Christ came in the flesh, dwelt among us for the suffering of sin, to make atonement for the elect. And so in one respect, was the atonement necessary? Was there anything internal or external that moved God to do this, that put Him under compulsion to save a people? No. Free and sovereign choice. But now we come to the other question with respect to necessity. Was the atonement a necessary prerequisite for the work of reconciliation, or could, have God, or could God have restored man irrespective of any real atonement? Really, could God save sinners in some other way? That's that question. Could God do that? You see, there's many people, and they regard the idea of the atonement as barbaric and outdated. They often say, well, why would God require or even allow his son to be tortured, to be killed in such a bloody and humiliating manner. Isn't God a God of love? Could he not just forgive people's sins without the awful shedding of blood? A Protestant liberal theologian, well, he's even argued that the classical Christian view of this uh, doctrine of the atonement is nothing short of child abuse. And I have mentioned that man before. But such comments they ignore or they either reject the divine revelation that it was necessary, that there was no other way. As the old gospel song puts it, there was no other way a God of love could find to reconcile a world and save a lost mankind. It took the death of his dear son upon a tree there was no other way but Calvary. Of necessity, Christ must make atonement if sinners are to be saved. Now, it has to be said, there has been always considerable difference of opinion on this point of the necessity of atonement since the early days of church history. And the debate really arose in a time during the period of a time of a man called Anselm. And he lived from 1033 to 1109 AD. And he stressed the absolute necessity of the atonement, and he based it primarily on the honor and justice of God. Others, they denied the absolute necessity, and they stated, well, there's nothing in God's nature that called for the atonement. God he merely preferred to save sinners in that way. It could have been some other way. And so they say it wasn't necessary. And over time, there's three schools of thought that have emerged in relation to the necessity of the atonement. There are those who say that the atonement was not necessary. And this school, they deny the infinite value of the sufferings of Christ. And they really state that God could have accepted any other substitute and might even have carried out the work of redemption and bestowed the forgiveness of sins without demanding any satisfaction at all. 
just because he's God. They say, well, he can do that, but they fail to understand who God is. That's the basis of the false, modernistic apostasy today. They deny the objective element of the atonement, and they focus on the subjective. They say, really, that reconciliation is affected by the change in the moral condition of the sinner. That's what affects God. Oh, you've changed. God's pleased with you. They fail to see the necessity of Christ making the atonement. The second thought is that the atonement was relatively necessary. It was only relative. And this school of thought taught that the necessity of the atonement arose only in the sense that God had sovereignly decreed to save sinners in this way. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ had to take place because God had decreed it, not because it was the only method that did not contradict God's moral perfection. If God had wanted to, He could have decreed some other way of securing salvation for the elect. And they say that the necessity of the atonement, well, it really only arose from God's decree. And what they fail to see in that is that the sovereignty of God really arises from the nature of God. That He is the I Am. That there's none before Him, none above Him. He is the all and all. And while that view might safeguard the free sovereign will of God, I said, as I said, it fails to fully understand that the sovereignty of God arises out of the nature of God. Now, the third school of thought is that the atonement was absolutely necessary. And this is the view of Reformed theology today. It's a view of this congregation. It was absolutely necessary. It was necessary absolutely because of the nature of God. And it's especially grounded upon the justice of God because God is just. He will necessarily maintain His holiness over and against sin. And He must inflict due punishment upon that sin. The nature of God argues for the absolute necessity of the atonement to be made if sinners are to be saved. And wisdom found the answer in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to understand that the atonement was absolutely necessary because some passages in the Scripture, they're wrongly taken to support that it wasn't. For example, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And there Christ is praying in the garden. And you know, and it's a very mysterious portion. But Christ is praying there, and he says, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And so there's people there who say, well, well, it's only relative. That would show there that it wasn't absolutely necessary. But you can't take that verse in isolation. We must take the must passages concerning the sufferings of Christ. John chapter 3, in the verse 14, the Lord said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Lord spoke to His disciples and says that He must go to Jerusalem. 
to suffer such things at the hands of the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees and the rulers of Israel. He must go. It was absolutely necessary. The doctrine of the absolute necessity of the atonement, it's vital for a number of reasons. First, it refutes the modern-day notion that there are many paths that lead to God and eternal life. Refutes all other ways to God. It also proves that only the sinless blood of Christ can remove the guilt and propitiate God's wrath. It tells us, secondly, a lot about who God is. That He's infinitely holy and He's righteous and He cannot dwell or a fellowship with sin. And it teaches us then that sin, thirdly, is exceeding sinful. Sin's not a light thing. And the thought of sin and committing against it a holy God should make us tremble with fear. Now, in the Bible, we have the evidence for the absolute necessity of the atonement. And there are a number of reasons why the atonement was absolutely necessary, most of which they are intimately connected to God's nature or character. Now, the Bible does teach that God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's infinite in perfections. And there's things that God cannot do. For example, God cannot lie. He can't tempt man to sin. He can do nothing except violate. Or sorry, He can do anything, anything except violate His own nature. We're told that in 2 Timothy 2.13. He cannot deny Himself. He cannot contradict His own nature and how he deals with sin. Therefore, when God determined to save a people from the guilt of sin, he could only choose a path and a course of action consistent with his own character, in particular, his moral character. And that's why Paul says what he says in Romans chapter 3 and the verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So there's a number of reasons in the Word of God, and most are connected intimately with the nature of God, that proves the atonement was absolutely necessary. Not relatively just because God decreed it, but absolutely because it was the only way in which sinners could be saved. So number two, we're only get, or sorry, number one, we're only going to get two done this morning in the time that remains. The atonement was absolutely necessary because of God's righteousness and justice. Many people who object to the biblical doctrine of the atonement, they do so because they do not understand who God is. They simply reason to themselves, well, why doesn't God simply forgive and forget? Wouldn't God forgive people as long as they're sorry and endeavor to be better? Well, the reason why God can't simply let sin go unpunished, sweep it under the carpet, and pretend that it doesn't exist is because He is righteous and just. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4 tells us, He is a rock. 
His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is He. See, when the Bible speaks of God's ethical or moral perfection, His his righteousness or His justice, it does not refer to a standard or an ideal that is outside of Himself, but it refers to, to God's very being. We read in John, 1 John, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness of all, at all. He is the judge of all the earth who will do right. And therefore, He will, He must of necessity punish sin. In the Bible, so many places that declare God must, God must punish and deal with sin. He will not justify the wicked. And we're told there in the Old Testament, He will by no means clear the guilty. He must maintain His justice and His righteousness. So that's why the atonement was absolutely necessary if sinners are to be saved. He must deal with sin. And He did it in the person of Jesus Christ. Number two, the last point this morning. The atonement was absolutely necessary because of God's holiness. There's another aspect of God's character that necessitates the atonement. One man said, the nature of God is perfect and complete holiness. This is not an optional or arbitrary matter. It is the way God is by nature. He has always been absolutely holy. Nothing more need or can be said. It is useless to ask, why is God that way? He is, or simply is, Therefore, being contrary to God's nature, sin is repulsive to him. He cannot look upon it. He is compelled to turn away from it. And if you and I, therefore, are ever to be in fellowship with God, in the presence of God, well, His holiness necessitates that our sin needs to be taken away. And that can only be done by the atonement. The attribute of God that is emphasized in Scripture above all others is His holiness. And His holiness refers to His absolute distinctness, His separateness from all His creatures, His glorious, exalted existence above creation and infinite majesty and moral perfection. That's what His holiness is. The God of the Bible is not like the God, the pagan gods of uh, the, the pagan deities. Moses, he asked the great question in his song in Exodus chapter 15, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness? The Lord is so holy that the mighty seraphim may cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And God's holiness demands perfect holiness in His people. And that's why He said to them, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Because He's holy, as I said, He can't dwell with sinners. He's of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. The thrice holy God cannot have fellowship with people who are not holy. And once we understand the holiness of God, we then understand the severity 
of the penalty that sin demands. Sin is wicked. Sin is moral evil. It's the opposite of holiness. John Murray, he writes this, sin is a contradiction of God, and he must react against it with holy wrath. Wherever sin is, the wrath of God rests upon it. Otherwise, God would be denying himself, particularly his holiness. God is determined because of his immutable holiness to punish all sin. And sin is punished ultimately in two places and in two persons. Either the individual will atone for their sin and they will be punished in hell. Or else our sin is atoned for and vicariously dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. God's holiness necessitated the atonement if any, any were to be saved. These are the first two reasons why the atonement was necessary, the righteousness and the holiness of God. I'm going to end there this morning. started out, and well, my intention in study was to look at the Day of the Atonement. But I think it's good to get a basis on what the Atonement is. What a glorious thought, the necessity of the Atonement, the essentiality of it. There's nothing internal or inter external that compelled or put a compulsion upon God to send a Son to make the Atonement, His free and sovereign choice to redeem a people. What a wonderful thing. And yet, on the other hand, the atonement was necessary because it is the only way in which sinners like you and me can be saved and have peace and be reconciled unto our great God. Let's bow in prayer and let's look to the Lord to bless His Word to all our hearts. Our gracious God, loving Father, we thank Thee for this, in one respect, simple doctrine, that Christ would die for our sin. And yet, Lord, there's such a fullness and a richness in it that blesses our soul, that brings us even to Thy person, Thy nature and character. And Lord, Thy love, Thy grace, Thy righteousness, Thy holiness, O oh Lord, we thank Thee for Calvary. We thank Thee for the precious blood that was shed to make atonement for our sin. Lord, we're so humbled to be Thine. We're so humbled to not only know these things, but to believe these things. Lord, help us to be strong in faith. May this strengthen us. Give us the blessed assurance that it's well with our soul. So we'll remember, Lord, the morning worship, the season of prayer beforehand. Do us good as we wait on in your presence. For this we ask in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.